Good morning and welcome to a review of engaging in the Bodhisattva's deeds. Venerable Chodron is away this week. She's attending a Buddhist conference in South Korea with Venerable Damcha, and uh, she's giving a paper while she's there. And so this week and next week, we'll be reviewing Chapter 5 in uh, Engaging the Bodhisattva's Deeds. Venable Kadro did some beautiful reviews of Chapters 1 in particular, and then also 2 through 4. And so today I'll look at the first half of Chapter 5, and then next week, Venable Simke will go through the second part of that chapter. And reviewing the first part of Chapter 5 the last couple of days has been such a good reminder for me of how to practice. Um, and so I hope that sharing some of these verses this morning will also be a good reminder for you. These are verses that we can go over again and again and again. And in fact, um, in May we did a short retreat, a Chinrezi retreat, and Venerable suggested that we use, we meditate on the verses that we've covered from Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And I found that so rich. In fact, some of us were talking this morning at breakfast that maybe we can suggest uh, that we do our winter retreat on the engaging in the Bodhisattva's deeds. We'll see what Venerable has in mind. So uh, before we do our prayers, I just was thinking back to how we began studying this text two years ago. It was May of 2000, or yeah, 2020. Um, and I think we would all agree that the last two years have been a little bit intense. In fact, as I was thinking back, in May of 2020, COVID-19 was just expanding exponentially at alarming rates. Um, many people were succumbing and many people were dying at that point. And um, at that time, we started uh, recognizing unsung heroes. Medical workers and essential workers were celebrated and serenaded from people's porches and balconies all over the world. That was a very positive thing that came out of that period. Um, there was also other good news. Toilet paper was reappearing on the shelves in grocery stores in May, finally. And, um, and SpaceX uh, sent its first uh, rocket to the, to the outer, space, outer space. But then the murders of George Floyd and um, Ahmed Aubrey and Breonna Taylor happened that summer as well. And that was a pretty heavy summer, wasn't it? Uh, the nation's focus shifted to justice and inequality. And also that summer, California seemed like it was going to burn up to a crisp. <laughs> there were a lot of wildfires raging. And um, Kamala Harris broke some records, or broke some barriers, we should say, when she was announced to be the running mate of um, President Biden. And both political parties held their com conventions online. That was a first. We also lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg and evidently a nonpartisan Supreme Court around the same time. And um, it was in November that Venerable Children had a hip replacement. And that's when we did the reviews um, initially. And then we also went to the polls in November. That was pretty big upheaval, remember? Uh, the pundits had uh, suggested that Joseph Biden would win hands down, no problem, just like they had with Hillary Clinton. <laughs> you remember what you were doing that night as the numbers were coming in? I do. <laughs> I, was, I was spreading. <laughs> um, and then when Joe Biden won, Trump amplified his campaign of voter fraud and stolen election, which is still playing out today. Isn't it amazing? That rolled right into January 6th insurrection and um, the hearings that we're having today, and the rest is history. So that was just six months of 2020. 
And I'll leave it to you to go through 2021 and the first part of 2022, but we've been through a lot. And aren't you glad that we have a text like Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life or Engaging Bodhisattva's Deeds to turn to, to keep us balanced, to keep us grounded in what's important and how to work with our minds no matter what's coming at us. So Venerable was very um, foresightful, is that a word, uh, in deciding that this would be the text that we studied next. We're very fortunate. Um, so let's take a moment now to um, do some prayers and we'll set our motivation. So take a moment to visualize Buddha Shakyamuni in the space in front. And it can be a very simple visualization, just the, the Buddha or surrounded by other bodhisattvas, lineage lamas, etc. Ourselves surrounded by all sentient beings and we're leading them in taking refuge and generating bodhicitta this morning. And then to help us set our motivation for today, I was thinking of some teachings that Geshe Dado gave last fall, and he shared some beautiful quotes with us that make very powerful motivations to contemplate. When asked to summarize the entire Buddha Dharma, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, when it comes to the view, its identity is rooted in dependent arising. And when it comes to conduct, it's rooted in non-harm. This can be traced back to the Abhidharma's explanation of the four immeasurables, where it discusses their objects of focus, objects of apprehension, and the actual natures of the four immeasurables. And then it points to non-harm, as the fundamental mental factor of which both love and kindness and compassion are made. He quoted the Vinaya uh, that provides specific instructions for fully ordained monks and nuns and gives some extra instructions necessary for protecting and pre preserving the Vinaya, which include these four dharmas or four practices that help make one a good sramana or truth seeker. And they go like this. If someone abuses you verbally, abstain from abusing in return. If someone shows hatred to you, abstain from showing hatred in return. If someone physically harms you, abstain from physically harming back. And if someone criticizes you, find faults with you, abstain from finding fault in return. And these are very much like the advice that we get from Venerable Chodron, who advises us to start each day as soon as we wake up with three motivations. Today, as much as possible, may I not harm myself or any living being with my body, speech, and mind. Today, as much as possible, may I be of benefit to myself and others with my body, speech, and mind. And may I engage in all actions with an altruistic wish to attain full awakening to be of greatest benefit to all beings. So let's use these, um, these quotes and these lines, these aspirations that we generate each day to either refresh or newly cultivate these thoughts now in our mind.
Okay, so let's um, let's start with just a very, very quick review or overview of the first four chapters and see what comes to your mind as we go through these. See what has stuck with you, which verses have stood out. Of course, we can't go through all the verses, but chapter one is about reflecting on the benefits of cultivating bodhicitta. And Shantideva explains the benefits of both aspiring and engaging bodhicitta in that chapter such as having the potential to destroy great negativity. I'm banking on that one. You like that benefit? The potential to bring about great bliss and happiness. We have small experiences of that in our own mind, don't we, on those moments when we can cultivate a real heart of loving kindness or compassion. And the potential to accomplish whatever we wish. So this one might be a little harder to actualize in our own practice, but we can see when we're engaged in a lot of virtue that things tend to go smoother. So we can extrapolate from that, that the more, we, the more time we spend in cultivating this very expansive mind of bodhicitta, uh, the easier our life will be. So we all have moments of that, and then we also have moments of self-grasping and self-centeredness that get in the way. Um, but we come back again and again. We start again fresh every time. And this is how we progress. So in this, uh, in this chapter, Shantideva quotes scripture and gives logical reasonings, and he uses many analogies. Does some of those come to your mind? Just hearing the word analogy, they're like five or six analogies. And he gives a lot of examples. And it's so inspiring to read that chapter again and again. I find it really lifts my mind. Do you find that? Yeah. Chapter one's a good one. And then chapter two is a little heavier. It's the disclosure of evil and outlines the branches that help us to prepare for uh, embracing bodhicitta, which we do in the third chapter. But in the, in the second chapter, just like before we would invite a special person to our house or someone who's you know really honored, someone who we have a lot of respect for, we would probably make some effort to clean the house a little extra special and um, maybe put out some flowers or bring out the good dishes that we don't use very often. And uh, we'd really honor them in that way. And in a similar way, when we're aspiring to generate bodhicitta, then we need to clean up our mind a little bit and maybe decorate it a little bit more with some, uh, some virtue. And then um, we do that, the way we do that is through the seven limb prayer, which Shantideva goes through in a very extensive uh, way in chapter two and chapter three. So chapter two includes the branches of prostrations and offerings, extensive offerings, offerings we probably never thought to uh, to make to the Buddhas. Uh, so that can also inspire us to go a little further than just reciting the very, very brief homeopathic seven limb prayer that we do in our practice. Um, thinking about owned offerings, unowned offerings, everything, really, everything in the universe we can offer um, since we have contributed karmically, collectively and karmically to all the things in the universe, then we have some little bit of ownership with it and we can offer it. Um, there's also a verse for going for refuge that's tucked in there. It's not part of the seven limbs. but And then the bulk of the chapter is about confessing negativities with the four opponent powers. And so that's pretty heavy going there, um, but a good reminder. Um, I think it brings in a lot of uh, verses about thinking about our death, thinking about how little time we have left. So that can be a very inspiring chapter. Then chapter three is called The Full Acceptance of the Awakening Mind, and it picks up with the limb of rejoicing. 
Um, the limb of rejoicing, I think, is so helpful for us. Um, it helps us to work with our uh, low self-esteem or limited self-concept, you know, to really take time each day to reflect on and rejoice in our own good qualities. Um, that might seem antithetical to countering self-centeredness, but I think they go hand in hand to really take time to rejoice in the things that we're doing every day. I remember as a new Buddhist, um, I was pretty hard on myself, like some other people we know. And, uh, where is she? <laughs> um, oh. <laughs> uh, and so well, I remember one time actually stopping and making a list of all the things that I was doing every day. And I was surprised. I was actually creating a lot of virtue. So, you know, sometimes that catches us by surprise. We don't recognize just how much virtue we're cultivating in a day. Not only re rejoicing in our own virtues, but the virtues of our spiritual companions uh, who are on the path with us, those people that support us and inspire us, as well as uh, our teachers. Uh, that can, we can spend a long time rejoicing in their virtues, the, the virtues of the bodhisattvas, the Buddhist bodhis Buddhism bodhisattvas, the arhats, and ordinary beings, you know, ordinary actions of kindness. So rejoicing uh, or um, gratitude, Some, sometimes people talk about that in terms of gratitude, being grateful for those things. And then requesting the, the teacher to turn the wheel of Dharma and requesting him or her to remain. And then we come to verse 23 and 24, I believe. Um, verses for generating bodhicitta. And His Holiness um, sometimes uses these verses when giving the precepts in large public gatherings. You'll have people recite these together with their intention to take the, the precepts. Just as the previous sugatas gave birth to an awakening mind, and just as they successively dwelt in the bodhisattva practices, likewise, for the sake of all that lives, do I give birth to an awakening mind. And likewise, shall I too successively follow the practices. And then this is followed by some really beautiful dedication verses that inspire joy in having generated or cultivated bodhicitta. Chapter 4 is on conscientiousness. And these verses help us to learn how to prevent any deterioration of our newly cultivated bodhicitta and also our practice of the six perfections. So it starts with the first verse, having firmly seized the awakening mind in this way, the conqueror's children must never waver. Always should they exert themselves to never stray from their practice. So Shantideva advises us in verse after verse how to be conscientious about abandoning wrongdoing, cultivating virtue, and being conscientious about abandoning afflictions. But primarily, chapter 4 is about guarding our body and our speech. Um, chapter 5 gets more into guarding our mind. So you may remember that the end, at the end of chapter 7, on joyous effort, we read a verse that said, in order to have strength for everything, I should recall before undertaking any action the advice in the chapter on conscientiousness, and then joyfully rise to the task. So Venerable advised us to go back and review this chapter on conscientiousness, remembering how to behave with our body, speech, and mind, and how to develop the mind that aspires to do what is wholesome. So that brings us to chapter five, guarding introspective awareness. Now, there are many ways to translate that term, but Venerable prefers introspective awareness. And so again, chapter five is, five is about really guarding our mind using mindfulness and introspective awareness. Um, and 
both of these chapters, chapter four and chapter five, are helping us to train in the perfection of ethics. So this morning we'll look at the first half of chapter five. It begins with uh, the verse that says, those who wish to guard their practice should very attentively guard their minds. For those who do not guard their minds will be unable to guard their practice. And so um, when Venerable was teaching this chapter, this verse in particular, she reminded us that um, here we're talking about something much greater than secular mindfulness, which is so popular these days. And it's so wonderful that mindfulness is um, still, even after, what, 20, 25 years, it's still very much a buzzword for people and uh, on people's minds and on people's apps and available for us to think about. But here we're talking more, more than just moment-to-moment awareness of what arises in our mind. If from a Buddhist point of view, mindfulness fastens the mind to a virtuous object. It's necessarily virtuous, and it's a familiar object. And then it prevents the mind from being distracted. How nice. <laughs> Wouldn't that be lovely to have a non-distracted mind? So what is it that we're trying to fasten our mind to? Um, Venerable often advises us to be mindful of our values and uh, our precepts, any precepts that we hold. So that's something that we do need to cultivate mindfulness throughout the day because it's so easy to do that in the morning to to, uh, reaffirm our aspirations. And then as the day goes on and we have more conversations and we get busy and we get stressed, those can easily go out the window. So, you know, how is it that we keep these forefront in our mind um, to do our very best to stay mindful? And then using that introspective awareness, that alertness, that little spy part of the mind that comes in and says, am I actually being mindful? Am I still being aware? Am I still on my object? Am I still living according to the values that I uh, espouse and the precepts that I hold? And It's wonderful how doing this builds confidence, valid self-confidence, because then we begin to trust ourselves more and more, not all at once, but more and more, that throughout our day, we're actually going to be living in the way that we ideally want to, instead of being jerked around by all the afflictive emotions and self-centeredness. Also, after hearing a lot of Dharma teachings, or even just a few Dharma teachings, we want to stay mindful of what we've heard. So there's this phrase, um, being mindful of what to adopt and what to discard. So all of Dharma really is about what to adopt in our practice, in our way of living, and what it is we need to set aside that's going to get us into trouble and place um, you know, negative seeds on our mind stream that will ripen in terms of suffering. We can also be, um, we can also focus our mindfulness on an object of meditation. Um, Venerable gave the example of being mindful of the four establishments of mindfulness. Some people are doing that practice on a regular basis here. So powerful. We've done that in a couple of winter retreats. And to spend time uh, really going through each one of those four establishments on the body, feelings, uh, mind, and phenomena. Um, it can really change your outlook. It can change our outlook and how we go through our days. So particularly focusing on the body and thinking about just noticing each body part and thinking about how it's impermanent. You know, body hair, hair head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, uh, skin, etc. Really thinking about it helps to change our orientation of grasping at a permanent self. So those are very important. 
We can also be mindful uh, throughout the day of a Buddha at our heart or maybe on our crown. Or some of us who practice Tantra might be mindful of the deity that we're uh, practicing and aspiring to be, you know, going through the day. And with that kind of mindfulness, then we can check up and think, okay, how would the deity handle the situation? Um, how would the deity think about this difficulty? So that can be very helpful. How would Chinrezi, uh, what, what would Chinrezi say in this situation? Or what would Tara do? Another thing we can be mindful about throughout the day and use introspective alertness with or awareness is the Lam Rim topic that we meditated on in the morning. Again, it's so easy to do a Lam Rim meditation and then, you know, it falls out of the mind as soon as we're having breakfast. But the way to really extend um, our Lam Rim uh, understanding is to then take whatever topic that we've meditated on that morning and then let, let everything that we come in contact with that day teach us about that topic. Now, I say this because I didn't start doing this uh, in my early years of Lama meditation, and I probably wasted a lot of time. So I often say this when I'm leading in the chapel or in the Kuan Yin room to remind people to do it because I didn't, and I'm playing catch up. Um, so it's a good thing, to, it's a good habit to get into. Let everything uh, be filtered through whatever Lamrim topic we meditated on that morning. Okay, so that's a little bit about mindfulness. There's so many things that we can be mindful of. We've heard, we've, many of us have heard many, many teachings. It's a lot to try to stay mindful of all of it all at once, but choose some portion of it and really hone in on it, familiarize with it so that it's there at the fingertips when we need it. And then introspective awareness is that inner watchfulness, like like a part of our mind is being a spy, uh, repeatedly examining our uh, physical, verbal, and mental actions to check up, to make sure we're still mindful. And so these two mental factors go together very well, don't they? Mindfulness and introspective awareness. And so it's worthwhile cultivating these. First on our cushion, you know, how is it that we actually cultivate them to make them stronger? Um, and then how do we extend them through our day? So like staying mindful on the, the topic we meditated on. So verse 2 says, In this world, unsubdued and crazed elephants are incapable of causing such harms as the miseries of the deepest hells, which can be caused by the unleashed elephant of my mind. So we find many animal analogies in the Lojong text and, and the Lamrim. And Shanti Deva is using an elephant, which is the largest, most powerful, tameable animal in the animal kingdom, to magnify this image of how powerful our mind is throughout the day to create our experiences. Um, a wild elephant can do a lot of damage. Um, so this was, um, I guess they, they still can to this day um, in countries where there are wild elephants. Uh, maybe a more contemporary way of saying this is if our mind remains untamed and un undis undisciplined and distracted, then we, have, we may have constant emotional upheavals. That's the elephant that happens today, isn't it? Trump, Trump. <laughs> How fun is that? <laughs> Not so fun. And so our anger and our attachment, jealousy, arrogance will only grow stronger if we're not staying on top of them. So this is a full-time job, isn't it? Staying mindful of what's happening in the mind all day long. That's not just a slogan. Uh, the Buddha meant that when he taught that, that this is, this is our job as Buddhists, to really stay mindful of what's happening in our thoughts, to check up, are these going to be beneficial thoughts? Are these going to lead to productive actions? Or are these things that are 
I'm, I'm, they're going to get out of control here. They're proliferating. I can see them already. They're growing bigger. The story's getting bigger. Uh, their creative writing is happening. And then, and then we get into trouble. So a mind distracted by self-centeredness and afflictions can lead us to the deepest hells. So he's not mincing any words here. This is what Venerable often praises Shantideva for, is that he just, you know, packs it with a punch. Um, so he's trying to get our attention. Otherwise, isn't it amazing how we, we can imagine that some actions don't really matter? Do you find that in your practice? We have a certain threshold, like, okay, I'm not going to do these things, but this little one, it doesn't matter so much. Um, well, I'll take care of it later. You know, it, it'll just go away. I, I don't have to worry about it so much. Um, in a similar vein, uh, I was remembering something that Venerable said recently in a Friday night teaching, and I, I remembered it differently than Venerable Manlam. She reminded me of how it actually went. But Venerable used a very bold example. She said, in a future life, if we were born as grasshoppers, we will have very different minds, and we won't remember what we've gotten so upset about in this life. I could be reborn as a grasshopper. Are you kidding? <laughs> that was a bold statement, wasn't it? It got my attention. I just didn't remember it correctly. Um, so our teachers are kind enough to say things in a way, sometimes blistering, <laughs> like the recent um, teachings in the Vinaya class. I really took those to heart. I still have scars. <laughs> I think they were directed primarily for me, but <laughs> maybe you got some benefit from them too. Um, so they use bold language to wake us up because we are so likely to fall asleep due to the heaviness of our own distractions. So the point here is that no wild beast can cause as much unhappiness and suffering as our own untamed elephant mind. And so what we need to do is tie that elephant with um, the stake of mindfulness. The next verse says, if the, um, but the, if the elephant of my mind is tightly bound through all by the rope of mindfulness, all fears will cease to exist. Okay, those of you who tend to be fear mongers, here's your line. <laughs> here's what you need to do. And all virtues will come into my hand just by being mindful. Well, okay, we have to be mindful of virtuous topics and we have to constantly be mindful, continuously be mindful. So mindfulness is necessarily virtuous in a Buddhist context. And it's like a strong rope that keeps this wild elephant mind from destroying everything in sight. And it brings us back to whatever familiar object that we've designated. So some people think that the breath is the perfect object for developing mindfulness. It's a good object, no problem. But we can be mindful about anything. We can cultivate mindfulness based on any virtuous object like we were just talking about. Um, maybe we stay mindful of our commitment that we cultivate every day to non-harm and, and kind speech. We Every morning, we bless our speech to have kind speech. And then, you know, then we need to check up to see, okay, how did I do today with my kind speech? Um, or maybe to be mindful of certain precepts that we find that we're confessing, those of us who, who have precepts, that we're confessing um, twice a month in our bi-monthly confession. You know, like a precept not to slander or intentionally annoy others. <laughs> I haven't actually heard anybody confess that, but <laughs> we do it, don't we? <laughs> and sometimes intentionally. Uh, well, at least motivated by afflictions. Or maybe we have um, an intention to 
uh, maintain this awareness of impermanence of the body when we notice attachment arising. That's a great antidote. Uh, or maybe we have an intention to use NVC language and really listen for feelings and needs. There's so many things that we could be mindful um, about the day and really tie our mind uh, carefully so that we're not trampling on things. Another benefit of mindfulness is that it tethers our mind to the present moment, which is so helpful, so that we can catch and cut off the strong afflictions that and the tendency to proliferate. You know, the it's... Um, this takes a lot of skill to really catch when our mind starts going off on, rah, 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 she did this and she said that and I don't like this and why do I have to do that? And I did this last week, it's not my turn. And all that stuff that, we, that comes out of our mouths. So come back to the present and then that proliferation will stop. It's really that simple. It's not easy, but it's really that simple. So a mind disciplined through mindfulness will not cause fears to arise in our mind and will only accumulate virtue. We've all had moments of accomplishing this, you know, when we can just drop the storyline. Doesn't it feel good? There's so much space in the mind when we can do that. And we can just chalk things up. Instead of taking them so personally, uh, we can just say, well, this is what sentient beings do. I love that line. It comes in handy. It's a great antidote, isn't it? Well, this is just what sentient beings do. This is what I look like when I do this. Those are great antidotes to keep on in mind. That, that's a mindfulness practice, too, to let, let things go. Just let them go quickly. And it's wonderful to see, uh, just in the short time I've been here at the Abbey, six and a half years or so, to see how our community is just constantly refining this quality of little incidents happen between people, washing dishes or wherever it happens, and then we just let it go. We don't have to process it to death. We don't have to talk about it later. You just know that the other, you trust the other person is working with their mind, and they're going to take care of their mind, and I'm going to take care of mine, and we just go on. That is such a relief, and that's a, that's a, a wonderful quality of a community, I think. So... Uh, Our practice is is to familiarize with and extend those moments of mindfulness and introspective awareness as much as we can. Um, We won't go through all of the verses, but, you know, it's hard to leave any of them out because (laughs) they're all so good. (laughs) So verse 4 and 5 say, Tigers and lions, elephants and bears, snakes and all my enemies, the guardians who are hell beings, evil spirits and likewise cannibals, will all be bound by binding this mind alone and we'll all be subdued by subduing this mind alone. So these are things that a ninth century Indian might have been afraid of, lions and tigers and elephants and bears. But what are we afraid of? What would we what would be a modern what would be modern examples? We have a lot of fear, right? It comes up a lot when we have courses, people talk about it. It comes up a lot daily. What are we afraid of? Criticism. Criticism. Yes, thank you. <laughs> What else? Failure. Failure. Oh, yes. Public failure, especially. (laughs) And humiliation. (laughs) What else? Anybody anybody afraid of COVID, getting COVID? I read yesterday that Dr. Fauci tested positive for COVID. We'll we'll remember him in our prayers. Gun Gun violence. Yes, that's a big one these days. What else? 
war. Yeah. De- democracy com- crumbling. <laughs> what else? Hate. Hate. Yeah. Self-obsession. Self-obsession, narcissism. Yeah, the whole gamut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a whole spectrum, isn't there? Uh, Monkeypox. <laughs> Those of you who read the news. Um, I'll bet some of you are afraid that Donald Trump won't be held accountable for his actions. Afraid that you're not learning, not making progress, progression, oh. and dying. Thank you. That is a that's a beautiful thing to be aware of. And fear, but that would be a a good kind of fear. I think that would be a cautious. Like we, we can be cautious about how we're using our life, um, and cautious that we're preparing for death. Um, maybe that's a, a different way of saying that, so that we don't get caught up in unnecessary uh, distress. But we certainly can be use wise caution to prepare ourselves for those things. Do you have another one? Uh, unfavorable rebirth. <laughs> How many of you fear an unfavorable rebirth? We should be fearing this. (laughs) It's a possibility if we're even thinking about future lives. So that's a very good one to keep in mind. That others will not love me. Yep, I think that's a very uh, common fear for people in this day and age. Recently in the New York Times, they ran this uh, video, um, I don't know, interview, I guess, of people... Where was it? Uh, I can't remember the country now. It, was, it wasn't Ukraine, but it was somewhere in that area. And they were interviewing people about their fears. And I was so amazed at how uh, transparent and honest people were. And it was things like, I'm afraid people won't love me. I'm afraid I won't be a good husband or a good wife. Uh, I'm afraid um, my child, I can't protect my child from the ravages of life. <laughs> things like that. So... It's good to identify those things. Yeah, one more. Trump's continuing influence. Yes. Right. So uh, maybe some of us are afraid of people judging us or being excluded in this day and age when there's so much um, bias and exclusion, a lot of exclusion. So when we... Did you... Were you raising your hand or scratching? Okay. When we guard our mind, that's what ethical conduct means, guarding our mind, the intention to guard. When we're guarding our mind, then we can guard everything. That's what the verse says. Because wrongdoing depends on the mind. So then we have these three verses about how wrongdoing depends on our mind. Verse 6 says, The perfect speech um, the teacher himself has shown, oh, the perfect speech himself has shown, that in this way, all fears, as well as all boundless suffering, originate from the mind. So there are various scriptures where the Buddha said things like this, like in the Sutra of Cloud of All that is Rare and Sublime. He said, all the myriad fears and suffering of the body and mind in this and future existences comes from minds overpowered by delusion and distraction and from negative actions they give rise to. So this is a powerful antidote to carry with us when we notice even the most subtle suffering beginning to arise in our mind. It's so easy to point the finger out and say, this, there's the condition, there's the person who's causing my suffering. But if we have really thought about karma and the general characteristics of karma well, 
then we're more likely to stop and say, wait a minute, this suffering is coming from my karmic seeds. Yes, this person might be a condition, this event, this situation might be a condition, but the actual substantial cause of suffering is in my own mind stream. So why don't I work on that instead of doing all this pointing? You know, one one finger going out, three coming back. Uh, that's a good reminder. So this can, when we can keep this in mind, again, that's a mindfulness practice. When we can keep this in mind, that reminds us to shift our mind, to stir our mind to virtue, uh, which is the cause of happiness, and to stop, again, stop their pro- proliferation. And so when someone gives us one of their uh, nice looks of disapproval or <laughs> displeasure, instead of getting irritated or you know getting all riled up about it, we can say, in our mind, we can just think, may they be happy. May they have happiness and the causes of happiness. Um, may they be free of suffering. And then we can go back to whatever virtue we're thinking about or go back to our work without um, proliferating or fuming or sulking or you know thinking about revenge. And it's such a relief in those moments when we can do that. I've been reading a wonderful book by Jeffrey Hopkins called Cultivating Compassion. And I don't remember which section it was in, but there, there was just this briefest description about how um, when he finds himself starting to focus on the negativities of someone else, he just immediately trains himself to think, I dedicate all my virtue to you. That's powerful. Give it a try. It just totally shifts the environment. It's like a mini Tonglin. <laughs> just shifts the energy going out to that other person. Um, and yeah, that's nice. Verse 7, uh, who intentionally created the weapons of those in hell? who created the burning iron ground, from what did all the women in hell or men in hell ensue, depending on your point of view. The Mighty One has said that all such things are the workings of a negative mind, hence within the three world spheres there is nothing to fear other than my mind. So when we read this, please don't think that we need to be afraid of our mind. That's not the point. We do need to be cautious, as we were talking about. We need to be cautious of of our habitual non-virtuous thoughts and actions, because they do bring results. And so the more we familiarize with those general characteristics of karma, the better off we'll be. The Buddha taught the law of cause and effect so that we could learn to avoid um, suffering, not to make ourselves feel more guilty and depressed. Okay, so this reminds us of what we um, have found a lot in our teachings on Friday night, that it's afflictions that that are what motivates the karmic actions that we're involved in all day long. So easy to think about this formula, but again, hard to hang on to this throughout the day. Throughout the day, afflictions create or motivate karmic actions. Those leave potent karmic seeds or imprints in our mind, and then that, when karmic conditions, when the conditions favorable conditions come around, then those seeds will ripen in terms of situations of dissatisfaction and, and suffering. So the summary of these verses is wrongdoing depends on the mind. That's what it boils down to. Then the next nine verses or so teach that all good qualities depend on the mind too, like the six perfections. So I really like this section, um, verses 9 through 17. So I'll just read them quickly. If the perfection of generosity were the alleviation of the world's poverty, then since beings are still starving now, in what manner did previous Buddhas perfect it? The perfection of generosity is said to be the thought to give all beings everything, together with the fruit of such a thought. Hence, it is simply a state of mind. So, of course, generosity can also include the actions that we do, but at, at, 
you know, fundamentally, it's the mind. Nowhere has the killing of fish and other creatures been eradicated, for the attainment of merely the thought to forsake such things is explained as the perfection of moral discipline. Unruly beings are as unlimited as space. They cannot possibly be overcome. Oh, sorry. There was just one, okay, one verse for the perfection of ethics. Nowhere has the killing of fish and other creatures been eradicated. For the attainment of merely the thought to forsake such things is explained as the perfection of ethical conduct. Then patience. Unruly beings are as unlimited as space. They cannot possibly all be overcome. However, if I overcome thoughts of anger alone, this will be equivalent to vanquishing all foes. Um, there's a, uh, like a bumper sticker uh, from Lama Zopa Rinpoche that says, no anger, no enemies. And it's true, isn't it? And then this great verse that's often quoted, where would I possibly find enough, enough leather with which to cover the surface of the earth? Yet wearing leather just on the soles of my shoes is equivalent to covering the earth with it. Likewise, it is not possible for me to restrain the external course of things. But should I restrain this mind of mine, what would be the need to, rest to restrain all else? So especially as it um, relates to anger and all the variations of anger. Then the perfection of joyous effort, although the development of merely a clear state of concentration can result in taking birth in Brahma's realm, physical and vocal actions cannot so result when accompanied by weak mental conduct. So joyous effort is really important for strong conduct. And then absorption or concentration. The knower of reality has said that even if recitation and physical hardships are practiced for long periods of time, they will be meaningless if the mind is distracted elsewhere. That that last line always gets me. <laughs> How much of my practice is distracted? Mm, a good percentage. Yeah. So this is a good one to keep in mind. And then finally, wisdom. Even those who wish to find happiness and overcome misery will wander with no aim nor meaning if they do not comprehend the secret of the mind, the paramount significance of dharma, which is pointing to emptiness. So, all good qualities depend on the mind. Can you think of any good quality that doesn't depend on our own mind and our own efforts? And then the rest of this chapter is summarized in verse 18. This being so, in other words, the six perfections being caused by happiness, I shall hold and guard my mind well. Except for the mode of conduct of guarding the mind, what use are many other modes of conduct? Um, I appreciated uh, Venerable's advice when she taught this verse. She said, coming into a monastery, it's important to come with a humble attitude. Do you remember her saying that? Whether people are trying to train us or not, our whole life is training. The mind that thinks, I know best, does not serve us. Humility doesn't mean that we give in all the time, keep our mouth shut or think everyone is wiser and I'm just stupid. Instead, it means that we act respectfully. And if it's just personal preference, then do it their way. <laughs> Reminds me of a B recent BBC I did. Sometimes we do it their way because it's too much energy to battle. You know, we have to pick our battles. It's nothing off my back if I give up my stubbornness. Uh, if someone is doing something harmful or dangerous, then we have to say something. We have to weigh each situation and we can question others, but without arrogance. And she reminded us as monastics that lay people are watching us and want to see subdued minds, <laughs> but without arrogance. Um, yeah, 
Lay people are watching us and want to see subdued minds and behavior. Our behavior affects others' respect and faith in the Sangha. Individuality that is so ingrained in American culture in particular is dangerous because it makes it difficult to drop our preferences and really cooperate with each other. So that's a good reminder for us. And then I love the imagery that comes in these next verses. Just as I would be attentive and careful of a wound when it admits a bustling, uncontrolled crowd, so I should always guard the wounds of my mind when dwelling among negative or harmful people. If I am careful of a wound through fear of it being slightly hurt, then why do I not guard the wound of my mind through fear of it being crushed by the mountains of hell? When I read this verse, I immediately think of an Indian railway station. Those of you who have been to India, you can relate, uh, especially in a busy time where people are just going in every direction. And if we had a wound, um, say an open gaping wound or maybe a back injury, (laughs) for example, then we'd want to be really careful uh, not to be jostled. And so we can use the same natural response to to guard our distracted, impulsive mind from situations that easily trigger our overreactivity. And so this is um, one thing that we do need to be mindful of is our own buttons, um, lest the, the wind of someone walking by triggers them uh, when we're in an over, overly sensitive uh, situation. And I think it was also in that section when Venerable advised us that as Dharma practitioners, we need to be very careful about the environments that we put ourselves in because the people around us really influence us. Um, you know, and we can ask ourselves, who, who ad, whose advice do I want to listen to? Worldly people's advice and, and uh, opinions and ideas or the advice and the respect, the, the advice of the wise ones? This is also, I found this to be, you find yourself, these, these little phrases of venerable come whispering through your mind at just the right time. I found, have found this to be really careful. I might find myself getting caught up in uh, someone else's opinion of what I've just done, how I've arranged the seating today, or, <laughs> for example, or something else. And then I can just remind myself, well, I did it with a good motivation, so I've probably, hopefully, I've pleased the wise ones. And if someone is upset, then, you know, hopefully they won't hold on to it too long. So that's a, another good uh, uh, mind training. So who we spend our time with, whose values and behavior we respect, whose who's advice uh, that we really value. Then uh, verse 23, Shanti Deva gives us a personal instruction. He says, with hope-folded hands, he says, Oh, you who wish to guard your minds, I beseech you with folded hands, always exert yourself to guard mindfulness and introspection. So he's not making a gesture of respect towards us. (laughs) Instead, he's indicating the extreme importance of this message. So often when we talk about the 10 non-virtues and we go through them one by one, it's really good to ask ourselves, well, where where do I draw the line? Um, What am I willing to keep? What am I willing to adopt? And where what am I willing to fudge on? You know, like for instance, when we think about killing, I'm pretty sure that no one in this room or no one online is going to go out and kill a human being. I'm pretty sure about that. But where do we draw the line? What about ticks or mosquitoes or uh, termites or uh, lice? If our animals get lice, or not lice, what is it? They get fleas. Fleas. <laughs> um, where do we draw the line? 
really being mindful of what we think is okay and what we think is um, not okay. Or um, stealing. Now, none of us would go out and steal a car or something of great value, but where do we draw the line? Like those of us who work out in the world, um, you know, anytime we're using, this, checking our, our emails or our cell phone at work on company time, isn't that, I mean, unless we've been given specific permission to do that, that's, that's a form of stealing, isn't it? Or we make copies on the, the company copier, or we just take a few things, you know, just a pen. Or I remember back in the 90s when I first started learning about the 10 non-virtues, I was still working as a dental hygienist. And, you know, I, I really didn't think anything of taking a little thing of floss home with me <laughs> or a toothbrush if I needed a new toothbrush. And probably the dentists that I worked for wouldn't have minded, but I didn't ask them. And after I uh, learned about this, I remember trying to really have a strong intention to be squeaky clean about not taking things, at least for that period of time. I remember it very vividly. And my mind felt so happy, so relaxed that I had taken on that, that practice for a short period of time. So where, did, where is it that we draw the line? Do we cheat on our taxes or... Do we plagiarize when we're, writing, when we're writing papers or getting ready to give talks? You know, it's so easy these days to look up really nice words on the internet and then just present them as our own. I, I've done it. Have you? Come on, who's done it? <laughs> We've all quoted the Buddha at one time or another. I don't think he'd mind, but. Um, what about non-virtues of speech? It's really, really helpful to go through each one of those non-virtues of speech and think about in which situations am I likely to lie? When do I think it's okay? Um, I caught something coming out of my mouth the other day that mm, I would have heard my mother say, just tell them I'm da-da-da. <laughs> no, you can't do that. That's a lie. Uh, so little white lies, they're still lies, aren't they? They still have a karmic consequence. And so it's so refreshing to go through, to re refresh and revise uh, the 10 non-virtues, their results, uh, all the different parts of them, you know, the basis, the, uh, the attitude, the performance, the culmination of them. Uh, it's a very powerful motivation that can help us. So, you know, thinking about lying, thinking about um, harsh speech, so easy for harsh speech, oh, divisive speech first. You know, even just those little phrases that we say like, oh, so-and-so, she's so da-da-da, or he's so da-da-da-da, you know, fill in the blank. That is divisive speech. That's trying to influence someone else's mind and how they think about another person. Um, something that really helped me to be take divisive speech more seriously was I read in a um, alarm rim text, and I don't remember which one, but I, I read in a alarm rim text that one of the um, byproducts of divisive speech is loneliness. And as a young person, I used to suffer a lot from loneliness. And I, I think it's a rampant in this day and age, especially with uh, the pandemic going on. A lot of people have really suffered from loneliness. And one of the karmic causes of experiencing that internal sensation of loneliness is divisive speech. So that can be a real inspiration to clean up our speech. And then harsh speech. It's so easy for harsh speech to uh, slip out of the mouth, isn't it? So where do we draw the line? And who do we draw the line with? And those people that we, uh, it, it's easier to have hard, hard speech with, you know, really making the effort to stay mindful when we're around them. How are we going to do that? You know, we have to have a plan so that we're protecting our mind when we do that.
And then idle speech. Oh, this one is so rampant, um, even at an abbey. <laughs> we were standing out front the other day re- getting ready to send off Venerable, and we were just all just chatting away idly. I don't know what you were talking about, but it wasn't about, for me, it wasn't something terribly important. And then um, a few of us decided that we'd start chanting mantras. Such a more beneficial way to use the mind. So that was good. So uh, in the next few verses, Shanti Deva lists some of the disadvantages of um, lacking introspective awareness, such as our actions will have little force. Can you afford that? Can you afford for your actions, especially your virtuous actions, to have little force? Our ethics will not be pure. We can't afford that. Our wisdom will not become pure. Our virtues accumulated in the past will be damaged and destroyed. And accomplishing virtue will be hindered. So again, when our spiritual goals are forefront in our mind, um, we can't afford any of these because they distract us. They slow us down. And then sentient beings will suffer as a result of that. So in verse 29, Shanti Deva says, Therefore I shall never let mindfulness depart from the doorway of my mind. If it goes, I should recall the harms of the lower realms and closely place it there. So he's talking a lot about the hell realms here, and probably um, people don't like to think too much about the hell realms, but it can be, you know, when it's appropriate, it comes at an appropriate time in our development it's good to spend time, especially if we have a retreat situation, because then you can really get some taste of what the hell realms might be like. Um, a, a verse that was mentioned earlier about um, the women in hell, I think that was a reference to this one, is it an occasional hell or a surrounding hell? I can't remember, but where there are these trees and uh, they have the leaves are shaped like swords. And so they can easily cut the skin. And so you imagine someone that you're really attached to at the top of that tree, and they're calling you with their sweet voice, come up here, come be with me, come spend time with me. And so you frantically start racing up this tree and cutting yourself all the way up the tree. And then you get to the top of the tree, and that person now is down to the bottom of the tree. And now the leaves have gone like this, and now they're pointing upwards. And so they're saying, come down here, be with me. We'll be happy together. And so you climb down the tree, cutting yourself all the way. That's kind of like what attachment's like, isn't it? Um, maybe, maybe not. Maybe you haven't discovered that yet. Um, attachment is exhausting. I'm just giving you a little hint of what I've discovered. It's exhausting. It's a good way to waste our life. Um, so anyway, thinking about the hell realms, the misery of the, the lower realms, not just the hell realms, but the hungry ghost realms, the animal realms, you know, maybe we wanted to leave that behind with our previous religion, but Here it comes up again, and it can be, you know, if we have a proper understanding of that, it can be so motivating, because as we said, one of our fears is taking lower realm rebirths. So, but Venerable was very clear. She said, if lower realms don't motivate you to stay mindful and and stay on top of virtue, she said, find another one that does, no problem. Just find something else that works for you. So like... um, we saw earlier in, in the Vinaya and the, the Sutra and Abhidharma, the Buddha said, ultimately, non-harm or harmlessness is the nature of Dharma. So maybe that's something that we keep in mind. That motivates us to um, 
to stay mindful throughout the day to avoid negativities. Or we can think about, I won't feel good about myself if I indulge in negativity. You know, who, who feels, who needs more, you know, fodder for that, those, that sense of low self-esteem or, um, you know, the ways we feel bad about ourselves. I won't feel good about myself if I harm this person, if I retaliate or if I uh, get revenge. Or my Dharma friends will not respect me if I indulge in negativity. You know, do you, do you care about what other people see you do? Maybe that can be uh, something that motivates us. Or I'm concerned I might destroy the faith of others. Boy, if you really think about that, um, that is a strong, that's an additional strong negativity, destroying the faith of others. So that can be strong impetus for us to be really mindful of what we say to people um, about our understanding of the Dharma. If we don't understand the Dharma, maybe it's best not to share. <laughs> you know, be really mindful. If we don't know something for sure, maybe it's better just to keep quiet in that moment. Um, or, you know, this is particularly being involved with negativities. Or thinking, I'm a monastic. I want to avoid returning verbal harm with harm, hatred with hatred, physical harm with physical harm, and criticism with criticism. I find these four um, lines to be really powerful and good to reflect on. Because I harm. Anybody else here harm? <laughs> I still fall prey to harm. So I have to remind myself again and again. And if we just let our mindfulness go and mind, mindfulness go, yeah, if we become, the problem is when we're mindless, we're not mindful that we're mindless. That, that's a real problem. But if we let our mindfulness go and ruminate on the revenge we're going to give, then, you know, we can, Venerable often reminds us, we can use our own integrity to ask ourselves, is that the kind of person that I want to be? That can be a sobering um, antidote for temptations to indulge in on virtue. I can do better, thinking I can do better. So if our mindfulness goes, think of the lower realms or whatever works. And, um, and, <laughs> and we can think of grasshoppers. Do we want to be reborn as a grasshopper? Whatever gets our enthusiasm back on, on track. Okay, so that's the first part of that, that uh, chapter. It's, it's not entirely uh, the first part that I'm covering, but then it gets into the actual perfection of ethical conduct, which has three divisions. And I'll bet some of you who study the long rim can call those to mind. These are good to carry with us, you know, to think about what are the summaries. In fact, this is a good time for me to give a little plug to outlines. One of the things I love about um, Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism in particular is outlines. Because with a long text, text like Shanti Deva's, I mean, I don't know, do you, anybody know how many verses there are? It's, it's over a thousand, I'm sure. I don't remember. Oh, maybe I counted them one time. Anyway, it's a lot of verses. And if we don't have some way of hanging on to them, nope, it's in another text. Um, you know, they all just kind of run together. Have you noticed that? So, uh, when I studied this uh, as part of the basic program uh, from FP through FPMT, we had this beautiful outline by Geltzebjeh. And so if you write to FPMT Education Office and request this, they will share it with you. But they won't let me share it with you, so you have to write to them. It's called Geltzebjeh's Commentary to Shanti Davis Engaging in the Bodhisattva's Deeds Outlines. I love outlines. I know I'm a Dharma nerd, but... It's so helpful to see how the chapter is laid out. Um, so 
in this part of the of chapter five, then it, it talks about these three divisions. I love divisions. <laughs> three divisions. You can really start to see it in your mind. The ethical conduct of refraining from negative actions, the ethical conduct of gathering virtue, gathering virtuous dharma, and the ethical conduct of working for the benefit of sentient beings. This is the benefit of having a, um, a long rim outline uh, memorized, because then we carry it with us. So uh, we'll just finish by um, reading the, the last uh, number of verses in this section, which is about this first division, the ethical conduct of refraining from negative actions. And this is what we uh, can all turn to regularly to remind us how to how to uh, continue refraining in addition to what we've already covered. I'll give you a hint. The remain as a piece of wood is coming up. So when I am just about to act, I see that my mind is tainted with defilements. At such time, I should remain immovable like a piece of wood. Now, that's not literal, right? (laughs) That's meaning uh, come back to your come back to being mindful and uh, using introspective awareness. Remain like a piece of wood. Be mindful. Okay, then there are a number of verses that are really about our behavior. I won't go through all of those. Um, But these are the ones that I'd, I'd like to finish up with. Whenever there, this is verse 48, whenever there is attachment in my mind and whenever there is the desire to be angry, I should not do anything nor say anything, but remain like a piece of wood. So here, we can interpret this remain like a piece of wood in many different ways. Um, We could interpret that to mean think about the drawbacks, the disadvantages of attachment or anger or jealousy or pride, arrogance, whatever it is that's coming up in our mind. We can think about the benefits of gaining control over our mind. We think about the benefits of mindfulness and introspective awareness. So many things that we could use in that moment to help us. So I should not do anything or say anything but remain like a piece of wood, if it were only so easy. (laughs) Um, Whenever I have distracted thoughts, the wish to verbally belittle others, feeling of self-importance or self-satisfaction, when I have the intention to describe the faults of others, pretension and the thought to deceive others, whenever I'm eager for praise or have the desire to blame others, whenever I have the wish to speak harshly and cause disputes, at all such times I should remain like a piece of wood. Those are a lot of things right there. Those are a lot of instances when we can really employ this mindfulness and introspective awareness. Because these, this is our life, isn't it? These things come up all throughout the day. Whenever I desire material gain, honor, or fame, whenever I seek attendance or a circle of friends, and when in my mind I wish to be served, at all these times I should remain like a piece of wood. Or... Uh, I think one teacher said, remain like a tree. You know, just remain still. That's the, that's the point, isn't it? Still the mind. Get, get control of the mind. 
Whenever I have a wish to decrease or stop working for others and the desire to pursue my welfare alone, if motivated by such thoughts, a wish to say something occurs, like gossip, at these times I should remain like a piece of wood. Whenever I have impatience, laziness, cowardice, shamelessness, uh, or lack of integrity, or the desire to talk nonsense, if thoughts of partiality arise, at these times too, I should remain like a piece of wood. So we're going to be like wood a lot, aren't we? <laughs> I am. I'll speak for myself. <laughs> I'll just stop talking. Um, and then a synopsis. He says, Having in this way examined their minds for disturbing conceptions and for thoughts that strive for meaningless things, the courageous bodhisattvas should hold their minds steady, you know, really see what's going on through the application of remedial forces, you know, applying antidotes. And then being very resolute and faithful and um, steady, respectful, polite, uh, with a sense of integrity. Um, what's the word general uses? Integrity and, oh, consideration for others and peacefulness. I should strive to make others happy. Boy, if one were going to have a tattoo on one's hand or arm, that would be a good one. I should strive to make others happy. I should not be disheartened by all the whims of the childish who are in discord with one another. I should know these to arise in the minds due to disturbing conceptions. You know, sentient beings do what sentient beings do. That's such a great antidote. And therefore, be kind towards them. What a concept. <laughs> and then in doing that which by nature is not wholesome, both for the sake of myself and other sentient beings, I should always hold my mind fast. Without, without disturbing emotions, acting like an apparition with no sense of self. So we haven't mentioned emptiness. Emptiness is also a great antidote for the disturbing emotions and the negative actions that come up in our mind. By thinking again and again that after a long time I have won the greatest leisure, likewise I should hold my mind as utterly unshakable as the king of mountains, Mount Meru. Okay, so we have a few minutes for comments or uh, questions that might come in online or anybody here in the room want to add anything. Please do. Of course, we could have spent, as Venerable did, we could have spent uh, a lot longer on each verse. And, um, and the real beauty of studying this text is to take, luckily she's only covering like sometimes one verse, sometimes three or six at the most, maybe seven and then really take them into our meditation to familiarize with them so that when we read them, something comes to our mind. It's not just a blank slate, but we can remember what, what Venerable emphasized. And we also have, I was amazed to find, we have probably eight or ten um, texts in our library that are commentaries on this text. So all of them have their own spin, their own flavor, their own emphasis. All of them are good for reminding us to enrich uh, and enliven these verses. Um, so that we can really apply them. Okay. Yes. Um, I do still have trouble remembering the value of my own life. I hope to keep self-compassion practice at the forefront of my mind. And the, it's a question, is it possible to draw the line with myself? 
Not sure I understand that. You had too much time working on your own self. Okay. So if it are you meaning working uh, too much time on your own self, your own well-being? Is that what you mean? Well, all of us. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges in our Dharma practice is to be 100% honest about where we are on the path. Because um, at least in this, well, not just in this country, in, I think it's a human condition that we like to think we're more advanced than we are. And um, it's very easy as beginning uh, Dharma students, which probably I um, can still consider myself a beginner, um, it's easy to think we know more than we do. And that we, we can say the words, but we don't know what the meaning is. So spend time at the, the beginning of the Lam Rim. One of the, one of the very first, not the first, but one of the very first topics is thinking about the preciousness of our life. That is very worthwhile practice. And that is very uplifting for the mind. So especially for people who tend to have more depression in their mind, uh, going through each of those um, eight freedoms and 10 fortunes is a wonderful way to spend time. Uh, I remember um, doing a retreat one time many years ago, and I was really wanting to get some realizations, you know, as you do when you're new to the Dharma. <laughs> so I was really focusing in session after session on these uh, eight freedoms and ten fortunes. And I can tell you that after a week, I was almost high from just, again, taking my mind again and again to these freedoms and fortunes and thinking how fortunate I was. Unfortunately, I needed to interrupt the, the retreat and I have never gone back to meditating on them in the same way. But that left a strong impression in my mind how powerful these verses are. So very worthwhile to, and you know, of course we go through them again and again with our studies and do meditate them, meditate on them like for a session or maybe for even a few sessions. Um, but if, especially if we can carve out some retreat time for ourselves. It can be just a half a day where we have two or three sessions where we're really thinking about the preciousness, um, the incredible conducive conditions that we have in our life. That will flavor everything about your Dharma practice because then you start wondering, well, what, how can I use this precious opportunity? And you know, and that leads right into, okay, well, I'm not gonna have this precious human life forever. It's gonna end at some point. So then that takes us right to the next uh, topic of the long rim. And on and on we go. Would you like to add something? I think that, um, how do I say this? That so much a part of practice is all that Shanti Dave is talking about is to continually come back and what is the state of our mind. But I know for myself that because there's so much individualism that has been sort of inculcated in my mind, that I have to watch sometimes I don't become pre self preoccupied. I think compassion for oneself is hugely important because we can't extend it to the world unless we kind of understand our own dukkha and stuff. But I have to be really, really careful that I don't become so self-concerned that my motivation for doing all of that is to generate, to be able to, to fuel my bodhicitta whenever I can get there. Yeah. But sometimes I think it can become a form of self-distraction and a little bit of too much on oneself. So there's a real fine balance, at least I know in my mind, because I'm so a, an individual, I'm so myself, mm -hmm. that I have to be really careful that I, I look at the longer, the motivation why I am doing so much introspective awareness, so much mindfulness, so much purifying. It's for bodhicitta. Mm -hmm. It's for the long-term goal, not for my own self-peace, my own self-liberation. I mean, it's, it's in there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you've brought up a good point, and that is what are what is really motivating us to do our practice. And so 
initially, we might just be interested in learning a little bit and maybe dabbling with some of these topics. Fair enough. N nothing wrong with that. Um, but then as we do receive more teaching, especially on the overview of the Lam Rim and get some feeling for that, then we will want to have a Dharma motivation, at least aiming for future lives, creating the causes for future lives, avoiding the causes for um, non-virtue, uh, lower realm rebirths, like we've been talking about, and really cultivating the causes for, for good rebirths. Um, but also, as you're speaking, Venerable Semke, you've been uh, engaged in the Dharma for a long time. So there's a whole spectrum of people practicing and how much time they have to put into their practice. But the point you bring up is a really good one. And, and it comes back to being honest about where am I in my practice? What's really going to benefit me? if I Do I actually need to focus more on myself because I have neglected that? Or uh, I need to shore up. I have you know a depressed mind or uh, I have low self-esteem. How can I really see the condition that I have in front of me to make really good use of that? And then as you're saying, that can easily teeter into uh, too much self-concern. And, and even into self-centeredness. So again, this is, I think, one of the hardest part of Dharma practice is looking at our motivation and really understanding what's my mind need now. That's hard, but that's what we're advised to do all day long, isn't it? Thank you. Anything else? Yeah, please. Uh, this, this particular uh, section where we came across Think of yourself as a little uh, wood or stick. I play around it by thinking of playing statues. Whenever such things happen, think that you are playing statues or challenge yourself how good a player you be. So that way, and then if you are playing a very good statue, then you wouldn't be even thinking also. Statues don't think. <laughs> Not only you don't move, but you can't, don't even think. Stop there from going forward. So that's what I play around with. Thank you. Yeah, that's bringing it into uh, a modern analogy of uh, a very helpful child's game, playing statues. Okay, anything else? Any other comments? Was it helpful to go through these verses this morning? I know for me it was. It was like, oh, right, get back to work. Okay, well, I guess we'll finish there for today. So before we dedicate, let's just take a moment to rejoice that we have met the Dharma, that we've come in contact with qualified teachers, so many qualified teachers, and um, qualified or classic texts like this to help us work with our minds in such a skillful way. So fortunate. And um, that we have interest to keep coming back to them again and again and again, knowing that it's going to take a lot of repetition. It's going to take lifetimes, but it's worth every, um, every moment of joyous effort that we put into it. So let's rejoice that we've had time this morning to reflect on some of these verses from chapter 5. And we'll continue with that next week. And so now we can dedicate.